we've been looking at the book of Isaiah together, so we're going to continue doing that today, looking at that passage there. If you're struggling to go through it uh, and work out what on earth that reading was about, uh, that's all right. I think uh, many of us have been finding um, Isaiah a challenge to work out what he's talking about. Um, We'll we'll get into that in a little while, but how about um, I pray as we have a look at God's Word together today. Please join me in prayer. Um, Loving Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you spoke through the prophets and through the prophet Isaiah. We thank you for the vision he gives us of your great kingdom that is to come in the Lord Jesus. Please help us to understand what this part of Isaiah is uh, talking about today and to grow in our faith and our uh, level of hope and desire for that kingdom to come. Um, We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you find it handy to have um, Isaiah 11 open in your Bible there, if you've got one, because we're going to look at that uh, as, as we go through. Um, I know we've been finding Isaiah a bit of a challenge, especially like in personal Bible reading and in, in, in life groups. Um, small groups have been uh, doing Isaiah and reading Isaiah and trying to work out what he's talking about. Um, one of the main topics Isaiah talks about is the last days. Um, he's talking about what's going to happen in the last days, kind of at the end of time, basically, when Jesus comes, is what he's talking about, although he doesn't know the, word, the name Jesus at this point. Um, God is actually giving really precious insights to his people in Isaiah. Um, and so it's a pity that it's difficult to understand. It is difficult to understand. Um, we have to get into the way Isaiah communicates. He doesn't speak straightforwardly. He doesn't speak literally. Lots of symbols, as we saw as we read that passage, lots of symbols, it seems. What's that about? We basically have to get a feel for how he communicates. And so I've gone through some of this before. I'm going to go through it again because I think it'll help us just get into Isaiah and to love the hope that God puts before us in the book of Isaiah. So I'll quickly take you through something about how Isaiah is communicating. um, And we need to kind of get a feel for how it works. I'll give you an example in a minute. Um, Isaiah, and I'll say this lots of times, how does he communicate about the future? Well, Isaiah paints pictures. He paints word pictures. of what God's bringing in the future. It's a way of communicating. It's supposed to make you think and imagine and get a feel for what God's planned for his people and help us to long for it and to love it and desire it. It's kind of really vivid imagery in words. Um, The elements in his pictures come from the Old Testament. He takes stuff from the Old Testament, uh, from the history of Israel, uh, and uses it symbolically to talk about that stuff that happened before is going to happen again and it's going to be much bigger and, and, and much better and this sort of thing. Now, already you're tuning out and going, that that sounds really abstract and difficult, right? Um, The newspaper uses this way of communicating all the time. It's actually more familiar than than you might realise. I'll show you an example. I I reckon I could pick up the Sydney Morning Herald on any day of the week and find an example of this way of communicating. I was writing this on Friday, so this is what was in the newspaper on Friday. Um, This is painting a picture, uh, went with a particular article, uh, which if you know what it's about, you get it, and if you don't know what the symbols are about, you don't get it. Uh, the, the article was called, uh, What Would Malcolm Turnbull Do If He Was Prime Minister? It was an opinion piece. Uh, it was about the terminal decline of Tony Abbott's leadership as Prime Minister and it suggested some of the things that uh, uh, Mr Turnbull could do if he became Prime Minister. Now, that isn't a literal picture. It's very symbolic, but it's got a very literal message. Now, what's going on in the picture? You've got a yellow brick road and poppy fields and a city that looks like it's made of emeralds. And there's a man with a big head, who's Tony, uh, who's uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. What's going on? It's the Wizard of Oz, right? And if you know the Wizard of Oz, you get what the picture's about. And you know what's literal and what's symbolic, right? Instantly, because you're familiar with the thing that it's drawing on. Um, You don't think it's trying to say that Mr Turnbull wears a hat like that. 
It's not the point, is it? It's, it, it's not literal. It's a symbol. It's, it's trying to make him look like the Wizard of Oz. Now, that's kind of how Isaiah is communicating. He's drawing in the Old Testament pictures like that and, and talking about the future on those terms. So he, will, he wouldn't draw the picture. He'd put it into words. So I'll put it into words and you, you still probably get it. You get a feel. This is how Isaiah sounds. And in their day of need, the Liberal Party looked for help. Four figures walked down a yellow brick road through poppy fields to the Emerald City to Malcolm Turnbull. You might write it like that, and you don't need to paint the picture. You've painted the picture with words. And, and you've got straight away what the message is if you know the Wizard of Oz, because you know that, that piece of text isn't about yellow brick roads and poppy fields at all. It's about portraying Malcolm Turnbull as the Wizard of Oz. Do, do you see how that's working? See, it's, it's using imagery that you're familiar with to, to make a literal point um, with, with the symbolism. Isaiah is doing that kind of thing, but he doesn't draw on the Wizard of Oz to make his point. Um, Isaiah is one of the prophets. So the prophets, this, this here on the screen was the laser thing. Um, good. Um, so this, from 1 Kings 11 to Malachi, a large portion of the Old Testament is mostly prophets dominated. And they talk a lot about this promised future that will happen in the last days that God's bringing. And they paint pictures in words of what that future will be like. The elements they draw on to paint those pictures are the Old Testament history of Israel. And, and they make them bigger. They go, you know what the promised future is going to be like? God created the world. Well, it's going to be a new creation. God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. They came through the wards of the sea. That's going to be a new Exodus. It's going to be bigger and better than anything before. God gave a law uh, to Israel and made them his people. The law is going to be on the hearts of his people, the new law. It's going to be bigger and better. There's going to be a promised land that's going to extend to the size of the earth. There's this king. David was the great king uh, who, who ruled God's people and, and brought peace to their land. There's going to be a new David, and he's going to bring peace to the whole earth. There's going to be a Jerusalem from where he rules from, and there's going to be a greater temple where God will rule the whole world and the nations will come to him. The, what it keeps on saying, the prophets keep on saying, is this promised future is going to be like the history of Israel, except bigger and better. They paint, paint pictures with these sorts of concepts. So once you get a feel for that, you start looking for references to things from Israel's past as you read Isaiah and you start getting what it's about. Um, in today's passage, uh, the things you need to look for especially are creation references, things that sound like a new exodus, promised land a bit, but especially the Davidic king, the greater king, the son of David, who is going to rule the whole world. That's what chapter 11 is about, basically. But he's painting pictures of this glorious future God has in store. Um, just in terms of those, those of you who are trying to study the book and think about it, I'll show you how I'm studying it at the moment. And I think this is very helpful. Isaiah thinks in pictures and symbols, right? So, here's what my copy of Isaiah looks like. I just have been sticking the pictures and symbols in the margin. That's, I, I, I put the whole book of Isaiah in a Word document. I went through, I put the main symbols in the margin, and you can see how the ideas relate to each other. Um, that, that's a fairly complex part of Isaiah, obviously. There's chapter 10. There's a lot going on there. Here's today's passage. I go through and I look for symbols from the Old Testament. Uh, the spirit of the Lord, the, the Davidic king is in this section. Who, righteousness and justice, that theme comes up. This whole section here is about the new creation. This large section here has a new exodus thing going all through it. And there's going to be a remnant of Israel who's going to come back and be saved, like in the first exodus, and come to God. And there's going to be people come to the nations, kind of like Israel came out of slavery. There's going to be people from all the nations that come out of slavery too, in God's new exodus to, to, into his kingdom. Anyway, that's, that's showing you what my working out. Get rid of that. I'm going to actually preach it. Um, but you get the idea. It's the, the, the symbolism that Isaiah is drawing on. It's very visual. So draw it. Just think about it in terms of pictures. And you start getting what he's talking about. And most of the pictures come from the history of Israel before 
uh, before um, Isaiah. Now, um, we're up to Isaiah chapter 11 and 12. Um, Isaiah 1 to 12 is basically one section with a message that goes through it. Um, we've been doing it for a few weeks, so let me pull it, through, pull it together for you, because this is the conclusion. This is where you see God's solution to the mess that the rest of the, those chapters are talking about. Picture language. Isaiah chapter 2, if you hear for that, that message, in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah has a vision of God's temple raised on a ridiculously high mountain uh, over all the earth. God is exalted over all the earth and people of all the nations are flocking to it, saying to Israel, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. Let's come meet Israel's God and learn his ways so we can live by God's ways and, and live at peace with each other. And so Isaiah says, in the future, all nations will flock to Israel's God and live his way and there'll be unity, there'll be world peace. Now, Israel had a really important role in this. Israel, it's their God. They're his special people. God lives in the temple among them. Israel had a very important role in that. Their role was to be a fruitful vineyard or a healthy tree, more more of this symbolism stuff. The fruit that the healthy tree or the vineyard's supposed to bear is justice and righteousness. Israel has God's law. They know how to live God's way. They have his promises and his protection. So they're supposed to, in front of the watching world, show them how living God's way is better. It's better to live God's way. Life is better when you live according to righteousness and justice and mercy and love. So much better. But it didn't turn out that way, the tree in the middle of the nations. As we read in chapter 5, the vision was that it would be a healthy tree. They'd wave the flag of God's rule over all the earth in front of all the nations. But the reality was very, very bad. The reality is they didn't bear any fruit at all. In fact, they, they, they bore bad fruit. In the place of righteousness and justice, they were unjust, unrighteous and corrupt. They bore nothing good. That was the reality. And so God confronts them and says... Well, tree of Israel, I'm going to send the king of Assyria with an axe in his hand to chop down your tree, which is what uh, Isaiah 6, the end of Isaiah 6, and basically all of chapter 7 to 10 is about. Assyria and then Babylon is coming to chop down Israel's tree, and so they won't have a land and they won't be a people that the nations can look to for salvation and to, to learn who God is and that sort of thing. So you get to 11, chapter 11, and you've got a stump in the land. That's how chapter 6 ends. There's a stump in the land. That's what Israel's been left with. It's just a stump. Um, and the, the nations aren't going to gather to that. It's, it's barely alive, if it's alive at all. We don't hear about the stump again from chapter, the end of chapter 6, but then it comes up again at the beginning of chapter 11 and something happens. Have a look at chapter uh, 11, verse 1. It says, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Bear fruit. It's going to come alive again. It's going to bear fruit. It's going to bear righteousness and justice. Now, what kind of trees is Israelite stump? Uh, I don't know. Any people into like gardening and trees and, and uh, that, that sort of thing? Some of you are. Like, I know a very my my my, fam- my parents are, and, and so I know a little bit from that more. I, I, I heard a uh, a story of a guy talking about how he planted a, a mugger iron bark on the nature strip around his house, uh, outside his house in 1990. Um, uh, Australia has some of the most relentless trees in the world. Uh, you have trees that go down into the earth as much as they go up. Like, it's just, they're ridiculous, some of them. Uh, so he planted a mugger iron bark, or mugger, I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, it that was in 1990. In 1998, it was four metres high. So one, one day, his neighbour came and drilled two holes in it, put poison in it, uh, and uh, it seemed to die. 
Then four years later, 2002, it sprouted again up to half a metre. Another neighbour came, chopped the tree down, ran over the stem with a bobcat, buried it under heavy clay and dug and filled a two metre trench around it uh, to make sure it was done away with. In 2004, it sprouted again. Tiny red leaves breaking through the clay. In a fortnight, it was 10 centimetres high. The guy finishes, the neighbour bulldozed it and covered it with bitumen. It hasn't reappeared, but I'm hopeful. What kind of tree is Israel, that stump in the land? Well, it's implied in verse 11. The stump is the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's nobody, actually. But his son's a big somebody. His son is King David, the great king of the Old Testament. The king, he's actually not great because of himself. He's great because God made great promises to him. He promised to establish his throne forever, and God's promises can't fail. So Israel's decimated, the house of David is decimated, but a shoot comes out in this future that Isaiah is picturing. A shoot comes out of the stump of Jesse. That comes from Jesse and not just from David. It's very subtle, but implies it isn't just another king in David's line. It's a new David. It's a, it's, it's a better David. Do you, see, do you see the slight difference there? It's, we've had lots of sons of David. They're all the kings of Israel, of, of, of Judah especially, who rule in Judah. But this is a new David. And so out of the stump will grow this king. That's what the picture is. You have this person growing out of the stump. It says that out of uh, this shoot out of the stump will bear fruit. And so where Israel failed, there'll be a glorious tree with the fruit of righteousness and justice which will fill the world from this king. Israel failed in justice and righteousness. Well, this Israel will not fail. This Israelite, this Israelite king will bring justice and righteousness to the whole world. And in ways we can barely fathom. Um, Let's, let's read again chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, and listen to the kind of king this king will be. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide with what he hears by his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. See these themes coming up again? With justice he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. That's the kind of king Israel will have in its future. I hope you notice justice and righteousness come up lots of times. You notice it talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. The Spirit will come on this king, and, and the Spirit of God has all these attributes, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. And because this king will have the Spirit in a measure that nobody's ever had before, he'll have those attributes too. We go th- they're actually in three pairs, uh, the way it's um, uh, spelt out there. So just go through them. Wisdom and understanding. Basically what that's about is this king, by the Spirit, will have the ability to govern and judge completely complete ability to govern and judge. He can actually rule. There'll be no amount of investigation or second-guessing that any committee could do to ever fault any of his decisions, or either as ruler or as a judge. In chapter 9, verse 6, he's called Wonderful Counselor, for this reason, the prophecy about the son of David who's coming. It's elaborated in verse 3, it's, and, and you start realising it's not normal, right? You can't find a person who can do this. It's supernatural. Like, look at verse uh, 3 there where he elaborates on this point of his ability to govern and judge. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he'll judge the needy. Absolute justice requires absolute knowledge. 
doesn't it? Absolute justice requires absolute knowledge. The best, most capable judge, the best, most capable ruler in our world will make mistakes. They just don't have the competency to do the job right. This king does. He has a supernatural ability to govern and judge. He won't make mistakes, and so he'll bring absolute justice because he has absolute knowledge of how to do it. Extraordinary. Second, he has counsel and might. It's not just good to be, have the ability to govern and judge. He's got to have power to rule and conquer too, enforce his goodwill on people. And he has supernatural power. When you use the phrase counsel and might, it's used later in Isaiah. It's like if you go to war, by your counsel and might, you win the, win the battle. Like It's kind of like in your tent, planning for war and, and that sort of thing, or, or, or governing the people. This king will have the power and ability to actually conquer his enemies. He'll pull it off. And to enforce justice in his kingdom. He'll pull it off so there won't be injustice in his kingdom. He can actually pull that off because he has the power to do it. It's not, good, it's not sufficient to have ability to rule if you can't actually have the power to do it. This king has the power to do it. Third thing, uh, knowledge and fear of the Lord. Basically, it's his goodness and integrity. This king with lives with such complete goodness and integrity and obedience before God that he never does wrong. He always does God's way in practice. He knows what it means to obey God in hard times and to always succeed at it. Now, think about those three attributes for a minute. He's got the ability perfectly to govern and judge, the power to rule and judge and conquer and so on, and the goodness and integrity to not be corrupt, even in the slightest. Now, I don't care what your political opinions are at this point. How could you say no to a ruler like that, assuming you actually could find one like that? It's, it's actually flawless. Like, if you had a ruler like that, you can't refuse him. There, there isn't any criticism to be made. Maybe you have got criticism for a ruler like that and you wouldn't want it, but, but why? Because we have baggage from political systems we've seen fail with corrupt people, people who can't have the power to do it, people who don't have the goodness to do it, but this king will. And so as we uh, look forward to the future from Isaiah's perspective, we're looking for a king of David's line, a new David, endowed with the Holy Spirit beyond anything anyone else in history has ever had, because he's going to bring justice and peace to the world. Him is going to come and give us a second reading now in the middle of the sermon. It's Luke chapter 3. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now we're going to jump over to the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 and 2 now, which is on the same page. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And now over the page to verse 14 of chapter 4. And going through to verse 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover of sight for the blind, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. I think Luke's trying to make a point. (laughs) Notice how much he talks about the Spirit being on Jesus. You ever wonder what the baptism of Jesus is about? Jesus is baptised before he starts his ministry. Very specifically, what that's about is, Jesus is that king of Isaiah 11. That's what it's about, just about. That's, that, that's the central point of Jesus' baptism. It's where God the Father commissions his son for his ministry to be that ruler and empowers him by the Holy Spirit to be that ruler, empowers him with those attributes to be that ruler. Now, instantly you're going, Jesus is God's son, so doesn't he have those attributes anyway? Um, just himself, he doesn't need the spirit. Um, and we'll get into some wonderful deep water that if you like. Thinking through those questions involves talking about the Trinity. Uh, but very short, simple answer. No, Jesus can't do anything without the Father and the Spirit. We believe in one God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be surprised in Jesus' mission to see Father, Son and Spirit completely united in bringing about uh, Jesus' task of bringing justice and righteousness to the nations. That's, that's basically what's going on at Jesus' baptism. The Spirit came upon him to be this person so he could bring about justice and peace and, and righteousness on the earth. Now, come back to Isaiah 11, page 690. I'm sorry if you've got the large print Bible today. I <laughs> don't know the page numbers. Um, I want you to follow along as well. Page 690, I'm, I'm going to get us to look at Isaiah again, the, bit, the bits that he says there. Um, all the deep stuff about Jesus, by the way, comes from the Old Testament. Don't, you don't just go to the New Testament to hear about Jesus. He's on every page of the Old Testament. Um, now, the passage goes on from talking about this, this great king who reigns in righteousness, Jesus, to talk about the nature of the kingdom he's going to bring, what, the rule he'll establish when he comes. So it's ba- talking about the second coming of Jesus, basically, at this point. Um, to be a judge slash king, to bring righteousness and justice to the earth, there's a positive side and a negative side of that. You need to uphold the law, protect and help the innocent. That's positive. You also need to get rid of something, as in you need to convict the criminal and defeat the invader and remove that kind of thing from your kingdom. So it says in verses 4 and 5 that he does both of those things. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 4. The first part of that says, With righteousness he'll judge the needy. That doesn't necessarily mean bad. It it means like he'll judge judge could give sentences to people. He can also give... uh, uh, what's, What's the word? He can give good things to people. He can rule that this person deserves to receive uh, this amount of the estate or something like that. Um, with righteousness, he'll judge the needy. Um, with justice, he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. Why the poor of the earth? Well, in Isaiah's day particularly, the poor are the people who are really suffering for it because the system is unjust and rich people are very rich because, mainly because they're corrupt and they're taking advantage of poor people. That's what's going on in Isaiah as we've read from previous parts of it. But even if they weren't corrupt, the best justice system in the world will still have little people falling through the cracks. They won't have the same influence with those in power. They won't be educated enough to make the best use of the system. Very often, it's in our society too. They can't afford the best legal representation. But in Jesus' kingdom, he will judge for the needy. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. The small people won't fall through the cracks. The negative side of that, verse uh, 4b, the second part of it, he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Jesus is an entirely good ruler, but we mustn't dare make the mistake of thinking that means he's a pushover. He's the one who, with power, will establish justice and righteousness on the earth. 
And you notice he's jurisdiction all through that section. He's a king of Israel, right? But he'll do the, the stuff for the poor and needy and those who are suffering injustice. He'll do it for those of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth as he removes evil and, and, and judges the unrighteous. He's in charge of the whole earth. That's the scope of his jurisdiction. He'll remove evil from all of creation and make all of it his kingdom. So in verses 3 to 5, we hear Jesus is going to transform the human world, society and nations, so there's no threat from people. We're safe from people, and we're going to live in right relationship with people in God's kingdom. Verses 6 to 9 starts to talk about the animal world. There's going to be no threat from there either, and this is just quite fairly unique in the Old Testament and, and, and pretty amazing, because all the parts of God's creation, any part you can name, is going to be brought into perfect harmony. Have a look at verses 6 to 9. It says, The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The passage actually talks about wolves, leopards, and lions, but um, we've already had like a Wizard of Oz um, reference, so I'm going to talk about lions and tigers and bears. Is that acceptable? Um, lions and tigers and bears, you can re- do the rest of the line if you want. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, yes. Um, <laughs> um, it doesn't mean change the meaning of the passage, changing it to lions and tigers and bears. They're just the predators that Israel was familiar with, the, the wolves, the leopards, and the lions. Now, if you've been to Taronga Zoo, I've been lots of times, and over the, the number of times I've been, I've had the opportunity to stand less than a metre from all of those animals and look them in the eye. That is an interesting experience. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm glad that glass is there. I can't imagine meeting one of these animals in the wild. They're just extraordinarily powerful things. You know, they're, they're often hiding, aren't they? But sometimes, like, one, the bear was, like, right up against the glass, and you just can't believe the bulk of the thing. And he looks at you... And you know what he's thinking. He's thinking, if this glass wasn't here, I'd start a fight with you. I'm going to beat you, and I'm faster than you, so you can't get away. Like, <laughs> and that's true of all those animals. They, they, they'll start a fight with me, they'll win in this fight, and I, they're all very fast animals. Running is futile. <laughs> they're very dangerous animals. But in this vision that Isaiah paints, you, you imagine the park near your house with lions and tigers and bears wandering around, and the only logical thing to do, surely, is to let your children go and play with the nice animals. That's the picture of Jesus' kingdom. Go let the kids play with the nice animals. I mean, and the kids, this is what the kids see, right? I want to go and give Teddy a hug. I'm going to pull Kitty's tail. And they're right. In Jesus' kingdom, they're right. The animals won't do them any harm. It's an extraordinary picture. There's no more threat from enemies because the king of justice and righteousness rules. There's no more threat from nature because the king's brought about a new creation, a new Eden where everything lives in harmony. You just imagine uh, a new strategy for looking up the kids after church. It's like the kids pestering you. Just like, go play with a lion. It's a good occupation. It's hard to imagine, but it's an extraordinary picture that Isaiah is painting. Everything will be in harmony. And so have a look at verse... Uh, uh, Eight, and it talks about it as a new Eden, a new, it's a new creation, new, new Garden of Eden. How? Verse 8, the infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest and they won't harm or destroy on all my holy mountain. There won't be any, any uh, danger in that situation. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, 
Because there's a curse on the ground now, uh, there will be enmity between the man and the snake. Here, there's the children of human beings playing with snakes and not being in danger. This is a new Garden of Eden type image. I've um, got a... The, the word infant is um, actually a kid who's just started to sit up in Hebrew. Um, Arthur sat up this week for the first time. So you look at this little menace, and he's going to play next to the snake hole. And, like, the toddler is going to go and put his hand in the snake hole to see if he can pull Mr. Snake out. Like, it's, it's an extraordinary future that Jesus is promising to his people because nature, nature will be in harmony with human beings and with itself, and everything will be in harmony. Oops. Now, how do you get to be part of that extraordinary new creation? To get to the promised land in the Old Testament, for Israel to be rescued into the promised land, they needed a exodus. They needed to be saved out of slavery to Egypt and brought to the promised land where they could live as free. Now in Jesus, God will rescue people out of slavery to sin and death. There'll be a new exodus into a new creation. You need a new exodus to get into the new creation. And that's what the rest of the passage is basically about. Where's the word new exodus appear? Well, it doesn't. But like the Wizard of Oz thing, if you know the, the key words and you know kind of the references to look for, then it's actually all over the place. Let me show you. Have a look at verse 11, chapter 11, verse 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria. So the idea is people will go into slavery to Assyria and these other places too. When was the first time the Lord raised his hand? Well, that was the first Exodus. In fact, if you read Exodus, God keeps saying, I will reach out with my mighty hand and pull my people to myself. That's kind of the way the language he uses to talk about it. Have a look at verse 15. It says, The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. In this future, it's picture language, right? The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea, and a scorching wind will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He'll break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals, and there'll be a highway for the remnant of his people that's left from Assyria as there was from Israel when they came up from Egypt. So you can see the thing coming from Egypt thing and this time coming from Assyria as well. But God's going to basically obliterate rivers and seas so that there's a highway between them. You go, when's God going to do that? Is that literally going to happen? It misses the point. Get the picture. The picture is there will never be a river marking slavery on this side and salvation on this side. The river's gone. You can walk back and forth. The whole earth is free for God's people. It's a once-for-all exodus out of slavery to sin and death and disease and it can never be undone because the river is gone. You can't be trapped on the other side of it anymore. Do you you get the point? It's a once-for-all exodus out of sin, slavery and death. Chapter 12, the whole thing is about the new exodus. Chapter 12 is a song. Uh, It's actually a reprise of a traditional Israelite song. My wife's laughing because she suggested, oh, it's that Mariah Carey song, right? No, it's not. Sorry, Mandy. (laughs) Does anyone know what the song is in chapter 12, where that comes from? When Israel went through the sea, on the other side of the sea, in Exodus chapter 15, they sang a song. And this is like a new verse for it. Like, it's got quotes from it in 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 the verse. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. I will praise you, God. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you have comforted me. This is what they said when the Exodus happened, verse 2. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and defense. He has become my salvation. In this new exodus, there'll be a new song to sing because you sing songs when you're saved. That's why we sing, actually. We're celebrating that we've 
experience salvation. We've got things worth singing about, worth being excited about, and worth proclaiming in ways that mere words aren't sufficient for. We have to express it emotionally, like, I've been saved out of slavery. I've got to sing about that. Is anyone here an involuntary singer when they're happy? Some of you, oh, here's the question to get the true answer. Is anyone here, is your spouse an involuntary singer when they're happy? That'll get, come on, I've got to see some hands. I know some of you are, come on. Shower singers, people sing when they're happy. People are going to sing this song because they're saved. In that day, they will sing, I'll praise you, God. And this is what Christians say. Although you were angry with me, I was a sinner. Your anger is turned away because Christ died for me. You've comforted me. God is my salvation. Now I will trust and I will not be afraid because God himself is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. I've been part of this new exodus. I'm one of the people that's coming out of slavery from sin and death into the new creation because I trust in Jesus. It's very symbolic, but the message is fairly clear. You see, it's a new exodus. People trust in Jesus. They actually come out of slavery to sin and death and they become one of the people on the road of the new exodus to God's new creation. Now, in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 4, we heard a vision of the last days where the nations would gather to God's temple. People of all, all, all nations would come to God's temple and, and to learn God's ways. Now, this new image in uh, chapter 11 is pretty much the same, except it's got Jesus in the middle of it. So we've got that image again. The nations will no longer be gathering to this wretched little stump on the ground. But in the future, there'll be a great king, and the nations will gather to him, the king of righteousness and justice, King Jesus. And so the picture in verse, chapter 11, verse 12, have a look at it. It's a great verse. He will raise a banner for the nations. He'll gather the exiles of Israel. He'll assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. He'll raise a banner for the nations. Like what we're seeing in the picture. He'll raise up his banner and people of all nations will gather to the Lord Jesus to receive salvation. It's kind of the picture of a warrior king. You know, you win the battle, you throw your banner high in the air and you know you have your cape blowing the breeze and people gather to the victor. It's that kind of thing. Now you ask, when that's, when's that literally going to happen? When are you see Jesus standing on a hill holding a flag and his people coming towards him to the victor? Well, we actually see it all the time. It's been happening for a long time. This isn't a second coming thing. This is what's happening now. People coming into a new exodus, gathering to Jesus' banner. Every time somebody trusts in the Lord Jesus, turns from their sin, trusts in, in him and says, I want to be part of your kingdom, I want to be part of your new creation, they gather to his banner. They become part of the new exodus to the promised land and they receive salvation. And they've got an extraordinary, extraordinary future. If you're a Christian, an extraordinary future to wait to look forward to. I hope it excites you as you read chapter 11 and you hear about a king of justice and righteousness who has the ability and the power and the goodness to actually pull that off. And he's going to be in charge and he's going to remake everything and it will be just and it will be righteous and you can be part of it. I hope that excites you. I hope that makes you want to sing about it because it's joyful, it's amazing. Because that's, that's what Christianity is. We long for the coming of Jesus to bring that. I hope we pray for the coming of that. And part of our mission here, our, our mission here, we long to see new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park in the growing southwest for their salvation, the good of the community and the glory of God, for their salvation. Because Jesus' banner is high as we talk about Jesus and uh, offer people the opportunity to become part of uh, the new exodus into his kingdom. 
how about we pray and, and give thanks to God for the extraordinary things he's, uh, he's done for us in, in Christ. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus, the, uh, the, one, the, the shoot that emerged from the stump of Jesse when Israel was at its most hopeless uh, and that you, yeah, you sent this awesome deliverer, this awesome king who has perfect ability to rule and judge, perfect integrity to do it and infinite power to pull it off. Thank you that he's our king and we don't have a pushover king who can't get the job done. Thank you that we have a king we can trust. Thank you that you've seen fit to uh, raise the banner of Jesus highest that people of all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, Jew and non-Jew alike, uh, can come to know him as king and follow Jesus and be part of this new exodus into his kingdom. Please help us to uh, trust in Jesus as we uh, journey on the way there. We also want to pray that you would help us to communicate clearly about Jesus and the opportunity he extends to all people to be part of that, uh, that great journey to your new creation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.